Yesterday, the Pentagon announced that three U.S. troops had been killed and dozens injured after a drone loaded with explosives struck them at a base in Jordan near the Syrian border. Now, none of that can be confirmed. The details, anyway, the location of the attack, and there's some question about whether that's true, but there is no question that American troops were killed yesterday, and the reaction to that mixed with sadness, was highly political, in fact, even strategic. Within moments of this news breaking, Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator from South Carolina, called for blood. Quote, hit Iran now, hit them hard, tweeted. Nikki Haley, of course, piled on. Here's what she posted to X. Quote, as a military spouse, my heart breaks for the families who lost loved ones. This shows the barbaric nature of our enemies in Iran, and it shows that they would not be attacking our troops if Joe Biden weren't so weak in his treatment of Iran. We should retaliate with full force, the full force of American strength. It's the only way to prevent further war. If we do not, these attacks will continue. Interesting. All of this came immediately. They were joined by Wes Clark, the former presidential candidate and commander of NATO and buffoons like John Cornyn, who apparently is a senator from Texas, etc., all saying the same thing. Let's go to war with Iran. They all said this in both sides. Here's Nancy Pelosi on CNN telling you yesterday that anyone who is not for this, who would like, say, a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, is working for Vladimir Putin. For them to call for a ceasefire is Mr. Putin's message. Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake, this is directly connected to what he would like to see. Same thing with Ukraine. It's about Putin's message. I think some of these, some of these protesters are spontaneous and organic and sincere. Some, I think, are connected uh, to Russia. And I say that having looked at this for a long time now. As you you know, think some of these protests are Russian plants? See, they're plants. I think some financing should be investigated. And I want to ask the, the uh, uh, FBI to investigate that. It's hard for most people to believe that a person in his or her 80s could be evil, but she is evil and she's speaking lies, which you heard is totally dishonest. But there's a point to the dishonesty, and that is a war with Iran, which people in Washington have been agitating for for more than 20 years. So are we going to war with Iran? Are we already in a war with Iran? And if so, what are the consequences? Most Americans have no idea. It's not even something they're thinking about, but they should be. Joe Kent is a former Green Beret. He's a combat veteran who lost his wife in one of these wars. He's running for Congress in Washington State in the 3rd Congressional District, and he has an interesting and highly informed perspective on this, and we're honored to have him join us now. Joe Kent, thank you so much for coming on today. So when you see all of this, and you know you hate to be cynical, but you really can't be too cynical uh, when you're dealing with the war party in Washington, it did seem like a coordinated response very quickly, moments after the announcement of the, tra of the tragic death of these American servicemen. Um, what do you make of the response from both parties in Washington to the deaths yesterday? I mean, this whole thing, we, we've seen it coming, Tucker. We left our troops in these vulnerable locations, like on the Jordanian, Syrian, and Iraqi border. Our troops have been attacked, we, we think, at least 150 times since the uh, October 7th uh, incident began. And so we've seen this coming. This was an inevitable conclusion. So by leaving our troops in these locations, undefended, essentially, we left them there as bait because so many people in Washington, D.C. want to go to war 
with Iran. They want to go to a war with Iran so badly that we will prop up the government of Iraq while the government of Iraq is completely controlled by Iran. We spend billions of dollars every single year funding, arming, trading, and equipping the Iraqi government so they can turn around and support the exact same militias that just killed our troops. Biden said it himself in his statement. He accused Iranian-backed militants operating in Iraq and Syria of conducting this attack that killed the three Americans and wounded nearly 30 more. That is nothing short of saying the, pop, the popular mobilization forces, which is the part of the Iraqi military that we support. So if you look at just the full scope of the way that we have arranged ourselves in the Middle East, who we're supporting and where our troops are, there's no other logical conclusion other than the fact that we have left them there as bait to be killed by Iranians at the time and place of their choosing so that we can continue to escalate towards a conflict with Iran. And like you said, there was a very coordinated series of talking points that came out almost immediately that we need to go and, and strike back against Iran. And look, we do need to strike back. We can't just let this go unanswered. But if we start taking strikes inside of Iran itself, that is exactly what the Iranian regime wants. They will benefit from that. If we start attacking Iran the way that we attacked Iraq, the way we attacked Afghanistan, then the Iranian government, the Iranian mullahs, the Ayatollah, the people will rally around them in support. We should be taking calculated strikes back at Iranian proxy groups for self-defense. And then we should immediately get our troops out of these foolish locations before we lose more blood and treasure for we're sucked further into a regional war. So if we could just go back to something you said at the beginning. Afghanistan, then the Iranian government, the Iranian mullahs, the Ayatollah, the people will rally around them in support. We should be taking calculated strikes back at Iranian proxy groups for self-defense, and then we should immediately get our troops out of these foolish locations before we lose more blood and treasure for absolutely nothing in the Middle East, and before we're sucked further into a regional war.
So the premise of our today's discussion is really to point out to you that everything we're doing, which is interesting and ingenuitive and ingenious and wonderful innovation like Elon Musk's work, fascinating, not against it. But the point is, is that he's trying to achieve what mankind lost in the fall and try to get back those the facility and, and the speed and the power and the and the immortality that we lost when we fell from the Garden of Eden. It, it's missing from our character to be fallen in, in this state, in this human state, and to have a 90 or 100 year lifespan. And we all have these stones. We memorialize each other and love each other. And we're all in the process of dying. And so the, you know, the atheists and the, which are the same individuals who are the nihilists, who are the same individuals who are the Marxists, who are the same individuals who are the godless haters, who are the same individuals who will don the black block and go out and beat up people who, who love their country and call them fascists, right? Murder people. I mean, Antifa is a murder group. Let's just face it. They're just a bunch of murder Marxists paid for by the Obama worshippers and the Soros elite World Economic Forum pigs, right? We like to put the, the Jewish billionaires out front and blame them, put them on the front like the Rothschilds, right? So they like to continue on that anti-Semitic conspiracy uh, New World Order, the Zionists, the learned elders of Zion, right? We already debunked all that. If you idiots believe in that, please get off my podcast. You know, do not even... You, you don't have it. I'm pulling your card. You don't have any right to listen to my show anymore if you believe in the, the learned elders of Zion. Priori of, the Priori of Zion. Priory. Priory was always a a little hamlet or a little city or, or a castle or whatever that was controlled by an abbot or a monk or a Franciscan father or priest who would control the Priory, right? The Priory. And so the Priory of Zion is referring to a cathedral or Roman Catholic structure, a Roman Catholic archdiocese, if you want, a Priory that's located in Zion, which is in Jerusalem. There's only a couple of Priories in Zion, right? There's only a couple of Catholic, Roman Catholic agencies that are there. And one of them is, of course, the powerful order, Knighthood Order of St. John at a very high level. They're very obviously connected to the, the Order of Malta, right? Equestrian Order of St. John. St. John is, a, is, of course, a powerful papal Knighthood Order who's had its post there in, in Jerusalem, representing Roman Catholic power and the authority and the autonomy and sovereignty of the papal throne, Rome. That's that's who that's whose power the papal knights represent. And they've had their seat there and their position there in Jerusalem for many, many, many hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. Go back to the Crusades, right? So that's that that so if you if you people are mystified by that, let me just explain to you what that what the priory of Zion is. That's what it is. So the people they don't tell you that part. They don't just spell it out for you, right? They just leave you kind of like, it's the Jews. It's, no, it's don't be don't be so daft fool okay but these individuals these high level papal powers and papal knights and papal nobility and royalty which is who these knights serve as they're coming up like like our our little our powerful elite men like our justice kennedy or justice john roberts right right after after he pissed everyone off and, and betrayed america where did he run off to he ran off to to go and join the knights of malta he was whisked away to the sovereign fortress city of malta for several weeks where he could you know he could receive his reward right because that's that's who the real power structure is right it's not some jews of course we already know that the learned elders of zion was a forgery and it was a rewrite and a re-edit and a rebranding of an older book of ignominy and disgrace and meant to defame right people so the older version was called the learned elders of the borg fontaine right the borg fontaine 
and you can go look that up, that the, the learned elders of the Borg Fontaine existed quite a long time before the learned elders of Zion came out in like the like the 1900s or whatever that was. So somebody just rewrote it. The, the learned elders of Borg Fontaine was rewritten and repurposed and commandeered to serve another purpose, which was to frame the Jews. And th- this book, the learned elders of the, the learned elders of Zion book, the protocols, right? They call it the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. That came out of Russia originally. If you go and do the, your research. And you can see how it was repurposed. And of course, I, I maintain that it was the academic warfare, the doctrinal warfare of the Jesuits of Rome to frame their adversaries. And of course, the Jews have always been the adversaries of the Pope. The Jews have always been the first ones to catch the pogrom, to get burned up in the medieval days. Whenever they're going around preaching the Roman Catholic propaganda to inspire uh, you know, the European farmers, farm boys or whatever to join the fight. And to come down and fight the Saracens and the, the Mohammedans, all right, and free Jerusalem from the unclean infidel, all right, and get a blessing from St. Peter, right? That was the propaganda. And of course, the first thing you do when you get everyone together and everyone's trying out shields and you, everybody's trying to swing out, swing around some some uh, new weaponry, they, you got to go down and find some some city or village somewhere where there's some Jews that have been living peacefully for, right. For a long time, and they just got to just go ahead and just start up the process of worshiping God with religious murder by having a pogrom and killing some Jews. Of course, this happened repeatedly all through the 14s, 1500s. So, you know, all throughout the, the Middle Ages of darkness, the dark Middle Ages, right? They tried to like clean it up at the middle, but it was really just dark the whole time because it was papal supremacy, it was the superstition and the slavery of conscience. Like we have liberty of conscience now, then they had slavery of conscience, right? So you can see that humanity has been burdened as a large popular nation right the popular populist nation of humanity right has been burdened with all this ptsd right mass ptsd and it's it's hard to for people to to kind of understand that they're having to cope with the fact that they've lost their their original echelon the primary place and position from which they were made to inhabit they lost their habitation we did as a people and we were sent down to this lower world this wilderness world where it's not a garden all the good foods that we need to keep living and keep having life the fruit of life right the fruit of the tree of life that gave us eternal life that I'm sure the humans, Adam and Eve in the prehistoric time would, would take part in and continue to live on and be joined and united physically and anatomically and ecologically and in every way with God. And I think they would go down to this lower world and they would serve God and help God. They were helpers of God. They were servants of God. They, they existed to help God facilitate what he was doing, which is building a world. And at some point, humanity sinned and they fell. They lost their glory they lost their connection with god they lost their power and their their agency and their ability and their primary instinctual attribution of spiritual preeminence and spiritual supremacy being able to fly it's something we try to do with planes we try to we 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 believe as a species that we should fly we should we believe as a species that we should have massive ships to carry containers across the ocean and we should use the ocean and float float huge flotillas of our uh, of our goods across the ocean at will we, we believe we should do that we don't we don't have any qualms or, or difficulty believing that that should be something that we're if we can if we're capable of doing it that we should do with regularity we should we believe we should advance ourselves with technology and medicine we believe we should try to heal ourselves right the human population is its own larger organism it has its own larger agency or actualization and, and facility that it performs and so from a god's eye view the, the none of us right all these billionaires and elitists and globalists they just they crave and thirst for the ability to to step out 
of the, the realm of just being this individual solitary unit. Because we have, in our mind, we have the divine spark. We have the intellectual power. We have the, we're imbued with the enlightenment and knowledge of God within us, but we're also damned down to die and live a short lifetime. So you can see these people achieve great power. They, they use the divine spark that, they, that God's given them and their, and their spiritual agility and the formation of their powerful human nature. And they use it to do evil. And they use it to side with Satan, who they probably don't even believe in, but they're totally, totally enmeshed with and intertwined with. And their fate is totally bound with, right? They're, they're bound up with the fate of Satan because they're serving him, whether they realize it or not. Their father is the devil. And ultimately, they're going to get the exact consequence of, of, the, of, that, of that betrayal, right? Of humanity at first and then of God in the final analysis because in betraying and murdering humanity and tricking and deceiving and destroying and making humanity sick, neutering them and using chemicals against them and just using all this kind of scientific warfare is ultimately the aegis and the, the expediency of the, the plan of the devil to whom they're, you know, which they're serving in service to. So when we recognize that marriage as a covenant was given to us to help us maintain our, our health and our cleanliness and our in this fallen state where they had to actually go make clothes and they had to go bang rocks together like cavemen, right? Because they had nothing. And out of that, we built these cities and these super highways and these rocket systems, right? But it's this beginning point where we start. It isn't like, oh, I'm a caveman and I was once a monkey and now I'm going to go hump a Cro-Magnon man and somehow our DNA is going to make a, you know, that's just, it's absurd. And they're doing everything they can to try to stuff that genetic paradigm and that particular theory and that thesis of monkey man, right? It goes back to they were they were so desperate to do it that even like I said the the the, the power elite were so had such a hard on to make sure that everyone believed in this evolutionary Darwinist theory that they had the piltdown hoax that the fake jaw the fake boar jaw that they said was some kind of fossil it was millions of years old right it's ridiculous right there was no humans or you know right running around millions of years ago so it's this point where we have to have the leap of faith where you can see the Teilhard de Chardin would just, the, the French Jesuit, he would just produce the hoax, the Piltdown hoax, in order to get where they were trying to go, right? And that's what they always do. And so this whole academic structure, this whole, like, worldview of the pseudo-intellectual class is just made of, like, styrofoam and, and glue and, like, little macaroni noodles, and it's, it's all just bullshit. So when we get down to the cellular level, the structure and the sophistication of the living cell is so sophisticated, it's so ornate, and so decorated with chemical-producing little factories, and that it, it's staggering, right? It, it, and no one even has any kind of way to comprehend how that even happens, right? It's just like Jim Brewer was saying, when he was talking with Alex Jones is that it's just like the, the butterfly who, who pops out of his little shell goes all the way to Canada and then goes down to Brazil in a certain tree and hangs out where all their ancestors have been going for thousands of years like how does that happen like there's, there's no explanation for that well it's a homing then just shut just shut up the, 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 no one is going to explain that and, and even when we go to Mars and, and, and you know we have, a, we have a base on Mars and Elon Musk's son is sitting in a chair there we still won't be able to explain that we won't so just there's part of this whole this whole pro, this contingency of life it's so mystical and so profound that there's no way to even there's no way to understand it. And the same thing is true with these information systems within the cell. The certain structure that allowed your eye shade to be just as it is. The mechanism, tiny infinitesimal, tiny little nuts and bolts, little Velcro, right? The tiny system, the microscopic world of chemical interactions. 
and, and nanotechnology, right? It's, it's nanotechnology. It's so finite. It's so the, the minutiae of it's so incredibly extraordinary, sm- small, and interwoven, and, and sophisticated, and dynamic that it, it defies all all human conception of what reality even is. So just just like when Jesus Christ holds up the mustard seed and said, "Look at this. Look at this mustard seed. I'm going to put it in the ground. It's going to make a stalk. It's going to make a 150, 200, 500 new seeds. They're all going to go on the ground and make a stalk. It's going to make a million, a million, a million." Right? This just keeps on going. Who can explain where the dynamism and the inner productive power and where does the inner space come from? Where, where, why does the seed keep producing space and space and space like magically out of nowhere? Where, where, where is that coming from? Like we can cut down into the, into the cells, into the tiny little particles of the, of the seeds and we can, we can look hard, but we can't find where all those infinite amount of seeds are going to pop out of. Where does it all come through? What wormhole is the dynamism and reproduction productivity of the dividing cell where where is that potentiality popping from where is it coming from guys you can't explain it all you scientists you scientism freaks just just get away from me with your mask you're in a weird cult right we're done with you guys we're done done with you mit anti-semi haters we're done with you okay so go ahead and just resign step down right because that's what's going to happen no one's going to forget we need to see how many plagiarists this guy i'm looking up the article here let me look Okay. So Bill Ackman, right? He wants to run to run all the data. I get the AI. We could do it. We could run all the all the data of all these little wormy leftists, Marxist cunts up there at fucking MIT, and we can just run all their work that they ever put a pen to or a Microsoft little cursor, and we will find out if they have ever plagiarized anything, and we will just take them down because I'm sure they're all a bunch of plagiarists, pseudo intellectual little pigs, right? They they can't do anything on their own without like having some duplicative language. Right? They're all just a bunch of weaklings and degenerates and hacks. Right? So we're going to punch a hole right in their little styrofoam noodle kit. There is their, the wall of their academic theory and the basis of all their supposed knowledge and the, the firmness and arrogancy of their supposed absolutely indestructible worldview of Darwinist, right? The, the humanist manifesto, right? That's, that's their shit. So they'll gladly serve Satan, believing he's an imaginary, just symbolic force not really really real right so they go and serve satan for that so that, that's how that's how powerful that propaganda system is and, and satan's system is pretty pretty smart pretty slick and pretty clever but it's nothing like the creative and awesome dynamic power of god that can govern over all the the grass of the field all the little turtles and squirrels squirming around in the soil and all the little birds flying to catch a worm for their little babies in the nest right he he can over govern every single particle and every single molecule and every single proton all at once without any effort, right? And, and so, of course, it's that level of power and processing capability that causes people like Elon Musk and others to, to lean over in their chair, right? Because they can't possibly comprehend how there could be an infinite, omniscient, all-powerful deity overseeing everything that he created all at once, right? It just, it just blows their ability to, to cognize out. It blows them out, dude. So that's how far ahead God is. He's already in the future. Alpha and Omega, right? He's in the past, he's in the future, he's already did it. it, it it's so epic, it's so supernal and so supernaturally powerful that it's the legend of it has, the, the books haven't even been written about it yet, right? We're still trying to come to terms with what, what happened in Zion. There was a Zionist named Yeshua 2,024 years ago, right? We're still, we, can't even, we can't even get a grip on that, what happened there yet. So what it comes down to is the responsibility of man. That's what, that's what we're going to get to here, guys. It's the responsibility of man, man's responsibility. Because if you go into the first couple chapters of Genesis and take a little close look there, you can see that Adam was made on the 
third day, but Eve wasn't made yet. This is crucial. So I don't believe that it was 6,000 years. But even if creation took 6,000 years, then there's going to be a 6,000 year separation between when Adam was made first and the third day when the grass is green and the herbs of the field was happening. Third day. And all the way up to the very end of creation when all creation was done. Every single aspect of creation was all complete. And what wasn't there for Adam? He went through all the... He named all the animals. He looked at all the different things. He went through all the different variations of, of life and inspected them all. But there was no mate or counterpart for Adam made. That's when Eve was made. Then. At the very end. So right at the very beginning, very beginning of creation... Adam shows up and he's helping the Lord. And that goes on for all the days of creation. Day three, day four, day five, day right, six days. All the way through the days of creation. Which is, in my view, billions of years. Oh yeah, I believe that was billions of years. Like You, you can equate each creation day to several billion years. And there's some fascinating research that's been done that we can dig out and show you guys about that exact idea. About the days of creation. How long they were. How long it took for the galaxies to form. How long it took for the, the earth to be formed in the first days of creation. How long it took for the solar system to come together and for the, the, the gases and the, the, the heavy atomic structures to come together that would create the illumination of the stars. All, all that. All that formation. I believe God did that all by creative power. And it wasn't random banging around of the right? They, they even give it a big bang. A big bang just went off. You can't have a big bang without a creator. You have that effect got to have a cause cause and effect as simple as that right the original inspiration the original cause of that great big bang effect was he had to have material lots of it who who would produce all that material where material can't just produce out of nothingness so we don't have to go back to like aristotle to re-argue all this but the point is is that yeah we're we're living through this event we've been stranded in this world and there's an order of responsibility and accountability. And we were given marriage. Originally, Adam and Eve didn't have a covenant marriage because they were just obviously already in the perfect state, in the Shekinah covering, the perfect state of, of unity with God. They, were, they, they didn't need a marriage covenant. But in the fallen state, they did. They needed the marriage covenant. And that was how they would keep from being debased and how they would keep from becoming just an animal, right? Going around to kill the young and, and like, you know what I mean? Just breed and, and season like some kind of simple organism right man was to retain their higher order of divinity in this marriage covenant which would be would be for man and woman between them but also is symbolic you'll see spiritually it would become a symbolic archetypal covenant between them and god right which is based on love the, the marriage covenant isn't just based on some kind of mechanical dry legalistic parchment right it's based on the living and flowing and lush energy and juice of love between man and woman right and that they make, they take in this love and then this desperate need to be together even even in death, after death, right? We think about our love carries on and our kids who remember us and who share in our love, right? Continues this, this ocean and this energy of love that human love is what balance, which it's what defines what side of the war you're on, right? So the marriage covenant, everyone understands it. Everyone understands how what a man's gonna do to protect his family and his wife and etc. But these other individuals even they don't have anything like that, right? They don't have they they poo-poo on that. They just like to have animalistic, lust filled, non-productive uh, uh, coitus, right? There's no offspring, there's no like there's no long period self-sacrifice of giving to children to take on and the next generation these people are just they're, they're abortionists if they do have kids they're just going to transgender them out right it's much more interesting to to destroy your children that way to annihilate them 
right? So they, they won't be able to rise up and compete with your narcissistic feeding, right? That's like, I think of The Rock. These other, like these Dwayne Wade, uh, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, kid, but I, I heard some of you guys out there have like transgender kids. Like, I mean, that, whatever's doing that to your kids, like, it's sad. It's, it's sad that that's happening to us and the way that we're just like in the grip of it, right? But well, many people out there all across the nation are with their kids all the time and they're imbuing their, what their parents gave to them to their kids and their kids aren't transgender. So it's, I understand it. But at the same time, when you're, when you're basically talking kids into it when they're four and five, it's not like somebody who's addressing some kind of like, you know, thing that the, is a burden in their life and they're just, they're not, they're not, they're not the person who they should be, right? They're not, you know, I get that. That's all, that's all stuff in the adult world makes sense. Corporal Clinger, right? And MASH. I get it, but the part where you're 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 trying to like t- go into kids' developmental stages and insert some kind of like perverse inception confusion and like bring about dysphoria, gender dysphoria in children, and then cultivate a whole peer culture of it in the classroom without telling the parents, yeah, you should be strung up and hung. Somebody should hang you from a post until you're blue. That's my personal opinion. I mean, I don't know if there's a law for that, but there should be. We should we, we should make a law for that. Here in Florida, if you rape a kid, I think it's a death sentence. So, right? That seems fair, right? If you can't control yourself and somehow you're demented and you, some, you know, you got to go. Just gonna kick you, kick you right to the curb, kick you out of this world. We don't need you around here. Our kids have got to be safe. It's got to be safe. So, yeah, it's a total, you know, oppositional worldview from those other people over there. So that that's how this weird new civil war is breaking down in the world. Kind of a weird, asymmetrical, indirect, unrestricted kind of tactical warfare, people in positions who can find to isolate or locate their political opponents around them and somehow get them fired from their job or get them, right? That's what Facebook jerk-offs people do all day, just zone around who they can, trump people that they can screw up their life, you know, screw up their life's work on Facebook, right? You're right. That's, that's the nature of this next civil war, guys. And then, of course, the enemy outside takes advantage of this discord and chaos within a nation. And of course, Russia won't be there. Russia was there during the Civil War to protect us, to keep the, the French out, right? The French and all the European powers were like chomping at the bit and sharpening their sabers to get in here and rip us asunder because we're killing each other half to death. And uh, the Russian the Russian uh, Tsar at that time, right? That, that Of course, after that, you'd have the, uh, the, the Tsar overthrown. It's probably his son or grandson. You know, one of the Tsars had to, the Tsars had to go. They, they can't be allowed to interfere and protect America again, right? Did I have the, the Bolshevik socialist, uh, the, the, the communist tragedy of Russia, right? It's sad. It's sad. It's lost, it's about lost generations. And they're not the mighty empire and the mighty force for nationalism and political independence and individual sovereignty, and right? That didn't the Tsar, was it Tsar Alexander II? Didn't he kick the Jesuits out of Russia, right? They, would you do things like that then you're going to pay the price. There's going to be a reckoning, right? And you mess around. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they porridge or poison your porridge. Right? That's all That's all they can do. All they can do is kill you once in this life and then you go on to glory. And you know what? We'll just leave them with the consequences of all their evil doing because they're fighting like rabid dogs, like little psycho rabid dogs for this world. Because that's all they get. A shot to control this world for 42 months, right? That's what it's all about. You guys know what it's all about. So... We have to talk about the responsibility of man. Man, man's responsible. 
and his response varied from the very get-go all the way along. So you can see man is doo-doo-doo coping along here, and he gets to the very end of the, the days of creation, and of course he, he, he goes to sleep, and then God, you know, takes the, the DNA matter from his body, his rib or whatever, uses that. Ooh, interesting, right? Interesting how the Lord operates without any surgery. And he forms and fashions what is already in man with a, just a little chromosomal, little chromosomal shape. We'll have some transgender surgery, right? We're going to take the rib of the man and, and fashion woman. Of course, we all know the woman is first. The woman bores a man, right? You can't have a, a man without a, a process of a woman having a womb and being pregnant and bearing the man forth. But Adam was created first, and so was Eve created first. And there she was at the very end of all creation, very end. So he, he Adam had been around the garden for many, many, I, I, you know, this, this other level, this other dimensional of space, right? This other wormhole that they pass through where there's a gate and there's an angel there with a fiery, a fiery sword and, and they're kicked out. They're no longer, they no longer have access to this separate area passing through this gate, right? Eastward in Eden, right? They no, they no longer have access. They're just kicked straight out into the, into the, the wilderness. It's cold, right? There's no garden. There's no fruits and vegetables and wonderful goodies arranged in a row right it's not it's not the garden anymore so here they are and ultimately they've fallen in this state and they're gonna have to survive and carry on and you can see that right from the get-go they were deceived and the whole issue is over the fact that right the very first thing that happens after eve is made and she's there and she's new she just got there she's new she she doesn't have all the right you ever been you ever go to a new job or you ever been to a new relative's house you've never seen before or and you're new, right? She's new. She's new though. She has no idea really what's going on. She's she's gonna you know kind of get the get the ropes and get the layout of what's going on. And the very first thing that happened is Satan is there, Lucifer, and he deceives her. And she hasn't been around since day one, like uh, Adam over there. And she makes a foolish decision and she eats the fruit because there's the devil. I mean, there's Satan. I mean, what's a lie? What's death? What's dying? The Lord said that you would surely die. Like, I mean, how do, how do these, these immortals even relate to this idea and this way of thinking? And all of a sudden there's this serpent there deceiving Eve and telling her, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. So she makes a big fucking mistake. She fucks up big time. But the blame doesn't fall on Eve because she's second. She's new. She doesn't understand. It's when Adam arrives, guys. It's when Adam arrives, the man arrives. He does, and he does know deliberately the truth. He knows over a long period of time not to touch that. Not even to touch it. It doesn't say don't eat it. It says don't touch it. He knows not to touch it, not to eat it, not to mess with it. Just leave it alone. It's over there. It's, you know, you will surely die. But he he sees what happens to Eve and he does it out of heartbreak and out of passion and out of overwhelmed desperation. He eats it deliberately. He does it knowingly. Even when what she had did was a mistake out of ignorance and out of a lack of knowledge and understanding, he did it with total foresight and knowledge and understanding of what would happen. And he did it because he loved her. It was out of love. They were murdered and they and they were set up and their love was used against because when he saw her, he loved her, right? That's a fact. That's a true story, guys. And so this is how we end up here. We have to remember who our enemy is and who's responsible, who's responsible for this. Because even though Eve ate it, it was up to man. It was up to Adam to say, you know what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's think about this for a minute. I'm not going to go ahead and eat that. I'm not going to go ahead and deliberately partake in the deception that you accidentally did, right? He made a choice. And so that's what it's all about when the Lord shows up. He comes, here comes the Lord, and they're hiding. They're naked. How can they explain this? They've got, they tore, they tore down like some leaves and some, right? Something that, something that'll rot away, some dried plants that'll just fall down. They won't, they won't cover the nakedness, right? So the Lord gives them the first blood sacrifice. He gives them the covering of a lamb skin to cover their nakedness as clothes, right? So it's the, the actual technology of clothing has got to be invented for us to live 
in this wilderness world, right? Because we're not like other animals. We're not like, we're not adequately and totally evolutionarily adapted to this place. We're not, right? That's why my dog can go around and just eat chicken poops off the ground. These little chicken poops that I guess they taste good because my some of my dogs have to run up and just eat the little chicken poops like they're like they're just like whipped cream puffs, you know? Oh, gross. I mean, if I did that, I'd have to go to the hospital. I'd be so sick. I'd be so sick because you know why? Because I'm not evolutionarily adapted to this place. I'm not from here. So it's time for us to take responsibility. It's time for us to be accountable for the knowledge that we've been given by God and to understand it. And we're now, we're going to go into a second part and we're going to, humanity is going to learn that man first is going to take first responsibility, first accountability in front of God and the judgment. So let's go ahead and face up to that. Talking about the Pope. Um, so basically he, he said, you gave that analogy, right? He says, so what you're, what you what you're dealing with is a political takeover under the name of religion. Most people never bother to extend the title of king or a monarchical figure to the uh, pontiff of Rome. They look at him as clergy. They, they look at the, 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 the Catholic Church strictly as a religious structure, failing to understand that the Vatican, which probably needs to be distinguished here from the Catholic Church in the strictest of terms, is in fact a world-recognized political division unto itself. Right. The Vatican is the political arm of the Roman Catholic religion. It's, it's unique in the, in the sense that you have a religious entity that also operates as a political institution. And your pre, your bishops, your cardinals, and your priests and all that stuff, they act not only in the spiritual realm, they also act in the political realm as, as judges and magistrates and ambassadors and, and uh, that type of deal. And, and what, what Samuel Morris was describing back then has played itself out recently. I mean, you watched all of that that entire march that went across the entire United States with the with the uh, Mexican uh, migrants <clears throat> waving their flags. Mm-hmm. At the same time that that was happening, I've got a Newsweek article here where Cardinal Mahoney out of Los Angeles, who was bragging about commanding the votes of five million people. Uh, was basically wetting his pants in the Vatican, watching this on TV, happy, happy, happy that he was able to pull this off, right? Because how it, how it more or less came about in Los Angeles, that's kind of where the, the, the root of a lot of this started, right? Um, was Mahoney got in touch with some radio hosts that he knew. Those radio hosts went out on Spanish radio and stirred up all these people to march in the streets against any laws that would turn that would make them be deported uh, back to uh, Mexico and Guatemala and whatever other country they came from. And here they are demanding demanding the same rights as American citizens when they're not even citizens. Essentially, that, that's what was going on. And and so they want to change the entire political game. Call it a human rights issue rather than what it really is, uh, a political takeover. And um, and that's, yeah, and that's how you've got uh, the, the, the church clerics involved in that entire process. Maybe where, maybe where we, we need to go at this point is just continue on the arc with the Jesuits. I, I want to refocus on that a little bit. We've looked a little bit at the historical background of the Jesuits, but the Jesuits have had a long time to 
spin their webs within various structures. We know, and then you pointed this out too, that they are behind many of the universities in the United States. Um, they have infiltrated the political system at a high level. They have a group of people, the Knights of Malta, and also um, another group called Opus Dei, which have infiltrated the American culture through our business and through our, essentially our social structure, I guess. Opus Dei is, what is Opus Dei exactly? I'm not too sure. I know that, um, I, from what I understand, Mel Gibson is a member. It was explained to me as being largely comprised of businessmen and people who are operating in the commercial sector. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of money and a lot of political power, uh, both 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 on this side of the Atlantic and in Europe. That's uh, and and apparently uh, this whole. Immediately prior to the Soviet Union dissolution, Opus Dei was used by Washington and Rome to get into Poland and start the revolution there. Ah, luckily, and, 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 and Zbig, uh, Brzezinski was instrumental mm-hmm. in using Opus Dei in order to accomplish that. Uh, him, so so it was it was Washington, Opus Dei. And Pope John Paul II started the collapse of the Soviet Union in Poland, and it just came off like a little domino kind of deal, right? That's all that all came about. Um, what I'd like to get into is taking how did how did Abraham Lincoln come to the full understanding of what was going on? Okay, because this is key in history that has never ever been taught. It goes back to a court case in Urbana, Illinois, and it was at that point in time that he came face-to-face with the Catholic Church trying to railroad an innocent priest on a phony charge of rape, and Abraham Lincoln and his defense team defended a gentleman by the name of Charles Chinnicky. Charles Chinnicky was brought into Illinois from Kamaraska, Quebec, in order to... uh, in order to uh, bring in all these immigrants to populate and settle the Mississippi Valley from Illinois all the way down to New Orleans, right, and take it over for the church, right? But at the same time, he was absolutely disgusted with what was going on uh, among the clergy in Chicago. They were corrupt like you wouldn't believe. They were taking collections from their parishioners and turning around and buying booze and hookers and, uh, and and engaging in corrupt business practices, they were having sex between themselves. Uh, all of these things that were going on, and Chinnicky wanted to put an, a complete stop to it, and they didn't want him to stop it. Right? Wasn't, so wasn't Chinnicky at this point? Wasn't he kind of moving towards a more scriptural, doctrinal lean in terms of he was actually reading the Bible? He was actually reading the Bible, and he was trying to put in practice. Uh, what the Bible taught, and a lot of things that he found were dem- diametrically opposed to what his own church was teaching. He wanted to try to be another Martin Luther, if you really want to put it in that kind of context, right? Mm-hmm. And um, but he was going to start in the United States, and uh, so he was, yeah, totally, totally disgusted with what was going on in Chicago, and uh, and tried to change it for the better. At that point in time, he wasn't thinking about getting out of the church. He thought maybe he could change it from within. Um, 
eventually he left the church and became a Presbyterian from what I understand. But it was through that court case where Abraham Lincoln uh, and uh, Stephen R. Moore, uh, who was uh, one of the law partners, defended Chinnakee in an, in an Urbana court in 1856. And during that trial, the Bishop Foley of Chicago was brought to the stand, and he had to testify uh, to, to, to uh, bring out certain aspects of Roman Catholic teaching and law, laws of the church, laws written by uh, 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 um, the, these two church leaders kind of thing, or this is what they believe. And it, boy, and it, and it, they got to how Roman Catholics understand the term liberty of conscience. And the bishop at the time on the stand tried to dodge the question like forever. He just did not want to answer these questions, right? And the judge finally said, you have to answer under oath. And if, so he did. And it just, uh, and so you've got about a dozen Jesuits sitting in the gallery from Chicago and New Orleans watching this like a hawk, right? And when Lincoln was able to force the bishop on the stand to expose the parts of, of church teaching that the, they absolutely did not want exposed, that's when they headed in for Lincoln. So we just want to carry on here on this vein, in this particular little niche that we have here, where we're, we're talking about the true accounting of the gospel here. And we have to remind all of you men across the whole face of the earth that the gospel that we're preaching and that Jesus Christ brought, and the, the gospel truth, the message, the good news of your salvation, was for men, right? It's for men. It's for the salvation of mankind, and primarily for men. Because if you look by and large, order of responsibility, as we were saying, the order of responsibility in, in nature and before God, and as far as this this thing regarding morality, and this thing uh, that they call marriage, this marriage covenant, you can see that it was placed there early on to help mankind, help the man and the woman to remain and retain their divine nature, even though they're being fallen down into this mortality, into this slow descent into entropy and agedness and death and, you know, and decrepitude, right? And of course, it would take a long time to gradually grow old, but not that long because they had just spent uh, the first part of their existence, like we were saying, in an unfallen state, in a, in a perfect orderly state where they were, they were not naked, right? They were covered by the Shekinah glory of God. The light of God was covering them like a garment. And they had their full faculties of all their the power that they were given uh, when they were first created uh, that we lost, right? So they had the, the power to have total dominion over the, the earth and the solar system and even, you know, all, all the, the creation in the universe, really, that God made. Uh, man was being prepared to, to take dominion over. And the entire process by which the Lord had been creating the cosmos and the solar system and the sun and the stars. Eventually, in the, in the third day, you would participate in that creation process with Adam. It says right there in Genesis, you just need to put reading glasses on and go ahead and read it again. The first two, three chapters of, of Genesis will spell it out quite clearly. It spells it out, the, the order of events. And then in the second chapter, it shows you when Adam and Eve were actually created. Adam was created in the third day which is very far back in the order of creation. It could have been, uh, you know, it could have been almost a billion years from the point where all that was on the earth was of waters and oceans and, and uh, plant life, like, right, like duckweed, right, and, and, and algae, right, are just covering the earth and, and grass is starting to grow up on the shore. 
but there's no animals, right? There's no, there's no living organisms. And so the, the whole process of creation by which that would happen, it would take a very long time, I agree, a very, very long time. But Adam was watching that from the covert of his divine estate. And he would return, I, I imagine, time and again to the garden, where he was, which was separated from the wilderness of the earth and, and, and the solar system, and he would replenish himself. So they would, you know, I, I imagine that Adam and Eve would perhaps rest again. They would be observable as just moving flashes of light across the sky, moving like lightning, as they would be able to move as the speed of light, like supermen, right? That these are true X-Men with incredible powers, Adam and Eve in the beginning. They would be able to be far apart. Adam could be on the moon, Eve could be down in the bottom of the ocean, and they could talk instantaneously so they could speak, right? That's what where all the creations, all the things that we're developing in technology are really just a metaphysical and theogonic attempt to regain all the powers and the faculties that we lost during the fall, right? So we, we don't think it's any kind of, that it's a stretch for us to have cell phone networks so we can talk instantly. We don't think it's a, a stretch that we should have a large scale system of transportation where we all can move faster and faster and faster and get there quicker and process information more quickly, right? So that's, that's how Adam and Eve would be existing in the very beginning. And of course, as we pointed out, Adam existed with the Lord in this process of creating all the things that you see around you in the world for a very long time. And then eventually Eve was created at the very end, the very pinnacle, the very jewel and the crowning achievement of all creation. She achieved it. The Lord achieved it in creating Eve and brought Eve to Adam, right? And they did not get to spend very much time together. I, I can't imagine how many times, maybe a few centuries, you know, just a, a short period of time where they got to be in this state of existence together before she was deceived and before she was murdered and before the, the Adam basically killed himself, right? As we were pointing out in, in the uh, previous discussion. So in, in this fallen state begins the history of mankind, begins man's entrance into the fossil record. It begins the point where we actually begin to take shape in the world. Right. And so this is when we're going to have this caveman period. And of course, they have to find a way to explain this away. All the, the haters and the godless unbelievers and the atheists, they, they can't just take God at his word. They, they can't believe the, the testimony of God. So they have to relegate it to some kind of mythology or some kind of made up uh, pretend storyline that, uh, that isn't really more than an allegory or just some kind of passing superstition. But we understand it to be an accurate an accounting of what, what took place at the very beginning with Adam and Eve and with the Lord. So we can see that if you look at Revelation, it's, it's just a final restoration, just bringing mankind back into this place where they enter in once again to the garden and they are once again in the presence of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they once again are brought full circle to complete the circuit and to learn the deep things of God and understanding that when God says that we shouldn't do it, it's probably a good idea and, and we'll listen to God and we won't do it, right? So this is what these other, these other idiots and these other atheists and and non-believing kind of pseudo-intellectual deformities. They were just refused. It's, it's laid out right in front of them, plain as day, and, and it's just their fate. It's their fate, and it's it's designed in their very being that they're unable to believe God, right? So that's kind of the pathway to destruction there. You just can't believe what the Lord is telling you. You refuse to believe it, and you just have to fill in the box, the big empty box, with just something of your own design, something of your own imagination, some kind of your own God, right? Just stick Allah in there, or stick Darwinism, or just whatever, whatever just kind of fulfills that space for you rationally, intellectually, and kind of like helps you move on with your day, right? But we understand that the Lord is God and he is not 
messing around than he is the lord of, of all creation and he understands information science more than anyone else right and he he laid out as a good creator and a good omnipotent deity who loves his creation we do he laid out the plan and laid out the information ahead of time so that we would find it discover it it would alter the direction of our lives and that we would be fulfilled and brought back into the, the completion and the continuity of this completed circuit right so we're trying to get back to where we fell from not with a tower of babel not with some kind of nimrod egyptian babylonian sorcery magic that makes us sacrifice our children to right to get eternity or whatever these people are these sycophant mystery cult blood worshiping uh blood drinking right they, they've always been after the blood of children the adrenal adrenalized blood of children during their sacrifices makes it makes them high right so that's the big secret oh earth shattering disclosure of revelation right just just so you know just fyi so the chorus if you go back and look how they they put their children into the flames for molak uh, and how they, they sacrificed the children in the past and many, many other cultures and generations. Kind of a, a continuous circle, a continuous looping of paganism uh, and Mithraic mystery rituals that it just ends up with dead children, right? And you can go to the Aztec and the mountains and the Peru, everywhere you go, somebody's off there killing children in order to try to like placate some sun god somewhere, right? So that's all that Satan had for us, is just murder your children, worship the sun, right? Those are exactly the things that God told us not to do. Do not worship the heavens and the stars and the constellations and all the celestial bodies. Do not worship them. They're just creations made by God. And do not murder your children. God doesn't like it, right? So let's just get back you know, to the point here is that man, you are responsible responsible for this knowledge and I, I love it when women try to get in on the preaching and teaching uh you know trip with the, with the men but the, the women are not accountable right so women can teach and preach it's it's fine but they're not the ones who are actually on the hook they're not actually accountable for this message right so in the end uh, when, when you're a man and you didn't teach this message or you didn't hear it or didn't believe it you're going to be responsible for this information and so it's the same thing in the order of accountability in the marriage covenant it's it's coming upon the man to give the woman the divorce decree so he has to write it up put his name on it and give it to her right and that squares her away but it's still the accountability is yours it's, it's your marriage it's your divorce declaration it's your divorce credential that you're giving her and sending her away with and it's your responsibility before God why you didn't keep your marriage vows and keep your marriage covenant and your marriage promises. Maybe there was problems there. Maybe there was adultery there. Maybe there was reasons why that it didn't work out and she got sent away with that with that divorce note. But that divorce note is going to be recalled. It's going to be looked at and it's going to be checked up on. So that's, it goes to the accountability of the man for the woman. So men are accountable for women, not the other way around. And so women can be bosses, girl bosses. Women can be billionaires. Women can be world powers. They can be elites. They can be anything they want but they can't be accountable before the Lord for this gospel message because men are accountable, okay? Men are responsible. Men are the ones who are going to have their ear pulled and their the hook in their jaw pulled up and they're going to be brought front and center in front of the Lord and, and the judgment. And then the women are going to be relegated over to the side. And that's going to be a time when, as a woman, you're going to be glad to be relegated to the side because you're not responsible for what's happening here in the world, okay? You, you might have some personal issues and some personal sins and some things that, you know, maybe in the, in the man's world they convinced you to have an abortion or maybe men you turned you towards, uh, you know, pr prostitution and used you, on, you know, maybe men abused you, you know, but ultimately the, the, the harm and the destruction and the, the inequity and the suffering that you have as a woman here in this world, it's the responsibility of men if you're not in a good way. Even going back to your father, if you didn't have a good father there in your home, you probably didn't get the up upbringing, you weren't raised the way that you probably deserve to be raised. And, and, and since you had that deficit, could have caused problems in your life. So it's not that women don't have any responsibility for their actions or behaviors or sins before the Lord. It's that ultimately in the order and the hierarchy of 
ordination of God's will, men are accountable first. Okay, so that's why when you go back and look in the book of Revelation, it only really describes two individuals who are cast alive into the lake of fire, and they're men, right? They're men. And they're the Antichrist and and the false prophet, those two, right? And I'm sure that others will probably go there with them, but they don't have to, okay? Because the the book of the Revelation only declares that two individuals absolutely for sure are getting thrown in there alive and there's no way around it. It's written into the word of God. It's prophetic. It's, it's, it's going, it's been written into stone. It's going to happen, right? Like Steve Bannon likes to say, it's going to happen. You know what's going to happen is that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going into the pit with Satan, Right, they're going. They go. They're all going together. They're going to hold hands. And they're going to free fall. They're jumping right in. And that's where they're going. Okay, that's that's the final accountability, right? That's the final evolution and the final iteration of the God's covenant practice is, is temple economy, right? Where the goat, the scapegoat with the with the red string, gets led out into the wilderness, and all the sins of all the people are put on to the scapegoat because he's really responsible symbolically, not the actual animal, but Satan. Satan is responsible for the fall and for the deception of the woman and leading mankind astray into this desperate place where a man decided to eat the fruit consciously and deliberately sin. While he pointed out that earlier that in the order of things that the woman didn't deliberately sin, she was tricked and deceived by an individual who probably was accountable and responsible to tell her the truth, which is, don't do that. It's not a good idea. It can hurt you, right? So it's the same thing you see today with the with the same order of events, the same kind of calculus, the same COVID shot, right? This is good for you. Take it. And of course, it's not. It's terrible for you. It's poisonous. And you probably killed yourself, right? You probably A lot of people killed themselves. Some 20 million people killed themselves willingly by injecting themselves with something they thought was medicine, right? So this is what we're talking about here today, guys. We're talking about the order of accountability and who's going to be responsible in this man's world for what happens here, okay? And we know that the man of sin, right, the, the Antichrist is a man. We know that we know that the Pope is always going to be a man. There's no way that Roman Catholic ritualism that you're going to ever have a woman Pope. It just, it's not there. It's just not written into the, into the stars for women. So, which is good for them because really this whole issue of people going to hell and people being judged before the Lord and people being punished by Jesus Christ for the sins, it's a man thing. There's really no women there. I just, I just want to point that out to you, to you men, since you're, you're not conscious of, of how this really works. And, and I know Islam and, and Muslims, they, they, you know, and, and really Mormons, they really get this screwed up too. Mormons have this secret doctrine, this occult doctrine, where it teaches them that, that if women are not faithful enough to their husbands, that they might not get woken up in, in paradise very soon, right? It's up to the man when the woman gets to be woken up into paradise. So here's the nuances of this weird Mormonism doctrine, right? So the, the husband is awakened first, and he gets to decide whether he's going to lean over and kiss his wife and awaken her, little sleeping beauty, from death, right, back to back to eternal life, or whether he's going to let her wait because she's been a bad girl, right? So that kind of it's kind of a weird psychological torture, a weird little, you know, Freemasonic doctrinal little innuendo there that suggests that, that somehow that men have this kind of this presupposed place of uh, of being first in heaven. But I think it's going to be the other way around, guys. I can see it clearly in my mind that the, the first are going to be last and the last here on earth are going to be first. So you can see that, I mean, how many men does the Lord really need? I mean, he's the man, right? And, and really, you have to understand how what's going to happen here. You have to, you have to understand how significant you are, man, husband, man in this equation because over there is the lord he's got eternal life he's got an eternal kingdom and what do you got you're dead 
I mean, how, how attractive in the big scheme of things are you really going to be to your wife after she realizes that the Lord is alive and he's awake and that the Lord is going to be omnipotent and all-powerful for eternity sitting on his throne? Like, how attractive is that? You ever put some thought of that? You ever thought as a man, how are you going to compete with that? Billionaire guys getting all, look at, look at Bill Gates, getting all old and flabby and, and gross. Has, hasn't even occurred into his mind, into the reality of having to face and look into the eyes of the omnipotent Lord, living Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive. People like to say, go around and talk about how, oh, maybe, maybe Jeffrey Epstein is alive and he's still, he's still testifying in the background. No, no, you know he's still alive, that you guys are idiots? Jesus Christ, the living Yeshua HaMashiach, he is alive. And his eyes are like flames of fire. I'm telling you, he's coming straight for you, men. He doesn't have any issue with women. What are you, daft? What are you, stupid? Do you think women are going to be some hell accountable and then all the men are going to stand back and be like, oh, too bad she wasn't a good woman, Lord. It's like, like the Mormons, right? Let's, let's just keep her awake. You know who's going to stay asleep? Mormons. You know, who, you know who's going to be last in paradise? Muslims. You. You men. You men have nothing to offer. You have nothing. You have nothing to offer. You can't compare with the, the Prince of Peace. And the, the, the great counselor of God, the great son of God, the great Messiah, you got nothing to offer. You are just dust in comparison, less than dust. He absolutely did not want exposed. That's when they headed in for Lincoln. And it was through that friendship that lasted up until Lincoln's assassination that, uh, that he was able to understand exactly how this entire uh, machine works. This was Lincoln and Chinicky, correct? This was Lincoln and Chinicky. It was through that court case they became very, very close friends. And then when Lincoln was elected president, Chinicky would come to visit him every year during his administration and kind of hang around Washington for a couple of weeks. And they would go out in their um, in, the, in their in their horse carts and whatnot and visit uh, soldiers in the field and go to the military, like the field hospitals and that. And um, Chinicky was invited into the White House, and they would sit and have very lengthy discussions. And it was Chinicky that would, that would, this is what's happening. That's what's happening. This is why uh, Meade decided, this is what happened with, this is why he decided not to chase after Lee, right? This is mm-hmm. why the, you know, and he's, and he's explaining, this is why the, the draft riots occurred. And, uh, and all this stuff. So uh, Lincoln was getting a complete understanding of how the Vatican was working behind the scenes to oppose him every time he turned around, right? So Lincoln was essentially one step ahead, and that they couldn't stand. But the whole antagonism with the church goes back to that particular court case. That's where he had his eyes opened. So effectively, Lincoln represented a threat to the monarchical powers, the money powers vested through the Rothschilds and the Vatican itself. And right. it, it kind of leads us to where we possibly could tie up this, this segment. And, you know, I by no means consider this to be the last conversation we have on this show on the subject because we've only scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. The forces behind the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, uh, we've been, and in, in here in the United States, we've been given the same version of the Lincoln assassination that we got of the Kennedy assassination, the same kind of whitewash that we got about uh, September 11th, 2001. We've basically gotten every time a single bullet theory that points to a patsy and a dupe. But in fact, in the background behind Lincoln's assassination, can we safely say, the Jesuits lay in the bushes. 
Absolutely. Um, what's taught down there is basically that John Booth was a ringleader, and he pulled all these guys together on his own. Then he came up with all this whole thing on his own, and uh, you know that's kind of how it's taught. That's not how it went down. Okay. If you want to get to a, who was responsible behind that assassination, you have to follow John Surratt. Now, John Surratt uh, was in his younger years, going through the priesthood. He was going to become, you know, a, a, a Roman Catholic priest in that. So he had to, and his mother was a, was a very, very devout Catholic. And the Surratt household, the Surratt Tavern, was constantly being visited upon by a, a, at least a half a dozen Roman Catholic Jesuits. And they, you know, like, given their background and everything, their, their antagonism and animosity towards uh, the entire Lincoln administration, they wanted to do something, right? So it was through Surratt that Booth came in. It was through Surratt that Atzerat and Spangler and, and uh, Davy Harold and all these guys came in, mostly through Surratt. And it was the priests that vetted each and every one of them. And, and, and they came up with this. They came up with how we're going to go about this. How the priests that vetted at that, Atzerat and Spangler and, and, uh, Davy Harold and all these guys came in mostly through Surratt. And it was the priests that vetted each and every one of them. And, and, and they came up with this. They came up with how we're going to go about this, how we're going to, you know, execute the plan, how we're going to get out of Dodge. And that, and at the end of it all, Surratt escaped Washington, went up to Montreal, was where he had two priests waiting for him. They knew in advance that he was on his way. They hid him out for about a half a year. They were carrying him around in disguise, sometimes in blackface, like Al Jolson or something, and that, <laughs> they, you know, and 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 um, keeping him basically in the dark of what was going on in the states, the United States. It was the biggest manhunt in U.S. history looking for Surratt. The last place they're going to look is in the private residence of a couple of priests outside of Montreal, right? Eventually, they put him on a boat to England. In England, he stayed for a couple of weeks uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a church building there, was given some money. From there, he went to Italy and became a member of the Vatican Guard. They were called the Zouaves at the time. Um, the United, they knew that the United States wanted him back. The United States was threatening. We know that he's there and he's going under the name of Watson. If you don't cough him up, we're going to confiscate everything that you hold in the United States. Well, the church, it's the last thing the church wanted. So they said, fine, we'll give him up to you. But what they did instead was plan a phony escape for him, right? Uh, so they, they, they helped him escape. From the U.S. from the, from the U.S. Secret Service and that, and said, "Well, oh, too bad. Well, he escaped. Right? There's nothing we can do. Uh, <laughs> you know." And and the U.S. government bought it. You know, uh, but the, then they find out he's on a ship on his way to Alexandria, Egypt. So they had a they had a Navy gunboat in the area in the Mediterranean, and they immediately sent uh, a, a wire to the captain to hightail it down to Alexandria and intercept 
threat. He's going under the name of John Watson. Pick him up and bring him back to face trial here uh, for the murder of Lincoln and the attempted murder of uh, Secretary of State Seward. So they bring him back uh, to face trial. Now, this is in a civil court, right, rather than a military tribunal. Uh, they pushed for a civil court because they knew if it was done in a military tribunal, the church would have absolutely no influence against it, right? So they pushed for a civil trial, which they got. Then they were able to diddle with the jury. They made sure that the jury was stacked with uh, several very devout Roman Catholics. And where was this trial held exactly? In what? In Georgetown. Exactly. In Georgetown, which is like Jesuit Central. Um, so uh, they, they were able to hold this trial surrounded by, uh, you know, uh, all, all, all of his friends, you know, the, his, his old alma mater. Uh, they, they, they knew who Surratt was and they would come by and kind of glad hand him and high five and all that stuff, right? And it was just happy, happy. They were able to play to the religious prejudices of the jury and it wound up as a hung jury. Not once, but twice. Because they tried, they had to retry him because it was a hung jury, and they wound up with a hung jury again. Uh, and then they decided to hell with it, you know, and let him go. Um, so you've got, so yeah, the church was intimately involved in that entire affair. And then I was able to contact a member, uh, one of the last surviving members of the Tinnicky family. Uh, her name was Laurel Faith. She was in her late 80s, I believe, and she's dead now. But I was able to get documentation. That she had, that her family actually had squirreled away in the basement in uh, in, in this part of uh, Quebec. Uh, historians have no idea that this material even exists. And among this stuff were sworn statements of Jesuit priests in Saint Joseph and Saint Cloud, Minnesota. That that uh, these, these statements basically said that we knew about Lincoln's assassination hours and days before it actually happened. And the entire community there, where there's a monastery and whatnot, they were talking about Lincoln's assassination as a as an accomplished fact at least three days before it actually happened in Washington. That is just absolutely damning evidence against the church. How on earth did they know days in advance that Lincoln was assassinated and talking about it to such an extent that they were almost celebrating the fact? You know, days be, days before it even happened. Those sworn statements have been locked away for 120 years, and I was able to get my hands on them, and I asked if I could uh, publish them, and uh, I was given exclusive permission to publish them, and so that's what I've done. And again, go ahead and give the website for the book. Okay, the website is ctwilcox.com, that's W-I-L. C-O-X, and there's uh, a link to uh, Lulu. You have to set up an account with Lulu and order the book there. It's available in hardcover and paperback and um, a PDF download. And if you want to, uh, I will also accept money orders and, and um, Silver Eagles or Morgan Dollars or whatever. Uh, if you want a signed copy, uh, I have a few here that I can send out. Let me say this about the book. Um, in the course of a year's time, and doing these shows, I read a lot of material. I get a lot of books. I have book authors on to largely expand the base of our own research here. This book was, I will say, one of the five most influential books I read last year and probably number one in bringing me around to completely grasping the hugeness of the Vatican Jesuit connections and how they've monkeyed with 
the history of the United States and, com- and, and completely changed the face of what this country could have been and what it once was. And unfortunately, we scratched the surface just barely of a very large topic uh, of which I'm going to ask you to come back again very soon, Chuck. So now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And as you know, our sponsor is courageously helping us to keep our show going here. So it's wendyslimited.com. Wendyslimited.com. So wendyslimited.com. Wendyslimited.com has all the hottest new styles and couture trends and latest boutique women's apparel and shoes and heels and flats and all kinds of just wonderful stuff. You have hives and honey uh, jewelry armoire. It's been a favorite lately. And we have, of course, Windsor crystal uh, lamps. I have one, uh, one in stock in particular that has been a favorite. So Wendy'sLimit.com is always open to help you get everything you need. Awesome Prada purse that we uh, saw that, that uh, Wendy's Limited just put up. So we have to think who out there wants to get incredible Prada fashion couture. You know that um, from what I hear, they're a favorite of many, many ladies out there, many women all over the place. In fact, I think you cannot find a single family member or wife or sister or aunt or grandmother or loved one or girlfriend or what have you that uh, does not love Prada purses. So if you want to be totally awesome, you have to eventually come to grips with wendyslimited.com. Wendy's Boutique Limited has all the hottest new styles and latest women's apparel, everything you need to be totally awesome. If you're a woman or if you have a, a woman who's someone that you love. And of course, we all love women because they're just so awesome. That's why Wendy'sLimited.com is so successful. So go check out Wendy's Boutique. Wendy'sLimited.com is the only place to go. And we have to recommend she's been totally 100% awesome to us and generous. So we are always going to be buying our jewelry, fine jewelry, gold, gold and silver jewelry. And all of our best boutique, couture, and designer trends are we're going to go to wendyslimited.com. So check out Wendy's Boutique Limited. So here we are. We just we have to do our level best to continue on that our interesting discussion here and yes we have to affirm undoubtedly so that the men you are undoubtedly first on the target block here of what's going on in in the world here as we approach this final judgment point in history so it's it's not for us to sit here as men preaching the gospel of jesus christ to sit here and and, and be womanly and be effeminate and sit here and discuss women, women's accountability in this order of things, 
Because in this order of things, in this command structure, women don't have any accountability. Other than the woman is duty-bound to do her level best to try to obey you and give you honor and respect in a godly way. Which, because we're such wicked and vile men here on earth, make a, look at all these pathetic pigs over there overseas who will throw acid on women's faces. And then tell them, that they declare to them three times that they're divorced and kick them to the curb and steal their children. Right, then go to court and send them to prison, right? It's a, it's, it's a shame, it's an abomination how women are treated around the world according to these sickly and depraved and degenerate religio-cultic ideological structures that are absolutely main, controlling and dominating the sociological landscapes of everywhere in the world that's not America. We're in the America bubble. And in the America bubble, women have the profound equity bequeathed unto them that comes from the Judeo-Christian philosophical worldview, the Judeo-Christian moral principle substrate by which we have our entire, the decades of our national body politic that gives us the benefit of God's perspective on people and on families and on marriage. I mean, this entire idea of a marriage covenant comes from the Bible. It doesn't exist outside of it. It doesn't exist in the as we said before, the fossil record of humanity until the appearance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, God, and their God who would walk with them and keep his promise with them and their children forever. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would, Jacob would be renamed Israel and, the nation, great, and all of his 12 sons and those great nations that came out of them would become Israel and God's covenant with them has been true and has remained true and faithful this entire time. So the, our way of honoring and keeping a covenant and keeping a wife and giving her the great deference and respect for everything she needs and giving her, putting her in the chair and raising her up in the air during the marriage, the idea of honoring the woman, put, beautifying her, giving her over to the opulent beauty that she is in the dress and the ornate jewelry and the lavish celebration and the, the seven day long Jewish festival, a marriage festival, a marriage covenant uh, celebration is seven days long, as you might want to take note of. So this is what we're facing in the future because Jesus Christ spoke carefully about the wedding feast, and it's all throughout the writings and the, and the New Testament oracles of the Brit Hadashah, like we like to say. All the New Testament accounts and the testimony and the red letter writings and pronouncements of Jesus Christ and all of his parables. And we are going over and over and over again about this discussion about the marriage covenant of the Lamb of God, right? The marriage covenant of the bridegroom. It goes into the, with the idea that there was, there was 10 foolish brides and 10 wise brides, right? And they were waiting, they were virgins, and they were waiting for their husband man, for the arrival of their bridegroom to collect them. And the foolish ones didn't have any oil and were not prepared. And the wise ones had oil in their lamps, were ready to light up the night and be, be ready to go and had all their preparation, all their gear ready to go. And when the, the bridegroom comes in the middle of the night and sends ahead his servant and shouts, his servant comes ahead and shouts, hey, be prepared, the bridegroom is about to appear. So she's not caught totally on alarm, right? She, they don't want to actually like drag her out of the sleep of bed. So she's awakened a little bit early. She's prepared. And the foolish brides find they're not ready. And then when he arrives, he comes to collect. And of course, you have to be prepared to go, even in the middle of the night. That's the parable, guys. The same thing was true when they brought Jesus. They brought her, the woman, they said they caught her in adultery. They accused her of sin. 
of sinning, like in a way that's just most deplorable, right, and horrible. But he is able to read their wicked male minds. And, and Yeshua HaMashiach doesn't have a wicked male mind. And he knows that he's the only person there who knows for sure that he doesn't really know if she's a sinner or not. Because he's the only one there who hasn't been with her. Right? So that's what that whole situation was about. So in case no one ever explained to you the dynamics of what was happening there when they brought the adulterous woman forward, the older men had to drop their stones and leave first because they understood and perceived the mind of the Lord that those younger men knew she was an adulteress, an adulterous woman, because they had been taking advantage of her, her state of quote-unquote sin. Right? Of course, this is a desperate time. This is a time when the denarius, the Roman money system is coming in in gold and, and, and you have a wicked king, Herod, who's making all kinds of deals with Rome for Roman money to come in the region. All kinds of Roman soldiers are coming in to earn their pay and casually, quietly start to build up the, the political machinations that are there to take over the independence of the Judean kingdom because of the wicked king, right? So all that money's flooding in and there's economic destabilization, there's poverty, the women are desperate. And what do you think they'll do to feed their families for those denariuses, right? That's the whole story of Mary Magdalene, right? These women who are caught in the, the sin of the man's world, with the man's money, with the man's pay. Caught in the, in the severe crucible of being crossed up between starvation and the lusts and, and, and the hungry, sexual, perverted desires of men. Right? And so when the woman's caught up in that, what do they do? They bring her forward to try to kill her. You think the Lord's going to take up that cause against her? Or is he looking at the men? He's looking at you, men. He's looking right at you. He's not looking around at whatever thing you're trying to scan around for to try to put your responsibility off on. He's not seeing it. He's not seeing some kind of pathway of escape or some kind of excuse for you. He's looking right at you and he's holding you accountable for what is going on in this world right now. All right? He's holding you accountable for your cowardice. And just like we have to understand that the parable of Jesus Christ is that he's a lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He's the great lion of the tribe of Judah. You know what these other men, these other men are lions. You know what happens in, in, a, in a male lion kingdom, in a, in a lion's world when there's too many male lions around? Some of those weak male lions, they get turned into little lion stakes. And when you lose the battle, you don't only get to crawl away, but you get to get eaten. The Lord Yeshua will eat you, boy. The lion of the tribe of Judah will eat you up. That's what that means. It's not because the lion is a, is a regal symbol of nobility and power. No, it's a, it's a regal symbol of nobility and power, but it's also the mechanism by which, boy, you are just another meal in comparison with this great king who's coming. And all these popes, all these kings around the world, all, the, all these pathetic kings going to the World Economic Forum and allowing their trollops right, to mouth out words about Digital IDs. Digital IDs, right? That's what we all got to worry about. Queen Maxima. Oh. And then you could tell everyone who didn't pick the shot and get killed by it. So these, these pathetic nobility, this pathetic system of world power is just so debased and disgusting. They're weak and pathetic. Look at them. Look at these pretentious, blue-bud, pathetic pigs. They're just worthless. Just worthless little cowards, right? They've just been bred into place. So let's carry on. Let's carry on with this more of this narrowing of the focus on you men right i love how these these modern churches are so womanly now and all the men are in there and they're dancing around and they're playing with the, the music and they're singing songs of worship holy jesus to jesus right worshiping him like a woman would do is that what the lord is calling you men to be doing 
If you're up in heaven right now and you're Jesus Christ, is that you want to look down and see all these men on their knees like crying and worship in Jesus. Is that, is that what the real church of God looks like? I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm not teasing you. I mean, I'm teasing you a little bit, right? But I'm not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I think you are. Because the Holy Spirit wants the men to be powerful and to be great, like in the, the Testaments of old. When men had great power, Yeshua comes from the line of David, and David was a great man who was filled up with the Spirit of God. Well, he hadn't ever heard of Jesus Christ yet, because Jesus Christ wasn't born yet. Well, Jesus Christ was in the, in the Spirit and the genetics and the loins of David. Okay, He was there. He was there. He was arriving. You know? You know what I mean? So King David is a great man. He slew lions in his youth, being overcome by the Holy Spirit. Right? And he was also a musical man. He liked to have his music, his uh, his instrument out and play music and sing worship to the Lord. But I don't know if he did it in the way that we're doing it nowadays. And nowadays, these men, uh, they won't go out into battle and swing the sword and destroy the enemy, right? Oh, well, now we have a new, a new... Right, what's the excuse? We have a new dispensation of God's grace on us so that we can just stay womanly inside the pew here. We stay inside the building in the shade and the A.C., and we just stay in here with, for the potluck dinner. And we still consider ourselves to be men, though, even though we're in here with all the ladies. Oh, and the children. So whenever we have like, a problem in the church with some kid getting assaulted by some adult who is, shouldn't be in there in the first place, right? I mean, what's going on there? What, why, why are all the, uh, the predators being allowed in close to all the, uh, the soft targets, right? What are all the men doing in there? Jesus doesn't need you on your knees worshiping, doing hymnal songs. He's not, he's not like hard up for, his, his ego isn't hurting. He doesn't need the affirmation and the constant encouragement from you, boy. He needs you to be a man and go out there and do the thing that he just sent you to do, which is the same thing he sent Adam to do, which is have dominion and power in this world. The kingdom of God is not of words, it's of power. So what are you doing over there? So just to make the, the point more clear, in Jewish tradition, in a family, when there's men and and, and they have wives, sometimes a man will die. It's horrible. And when a man dies, according to Jewish law, the, the responsibility, the economic and the physical accountability and, and responsibility for the family and kids of, of that uh, spouse, the woman and the kids of that, of that man, now go get un enfolded underneath an, uh, the umbrella of the next oldest son, if he's able to. Or the next oldest son after that, if he's able to, you know, so on and so forth, until the needs and the future requirements for the for that woman and those kids are, you know, faithfully taken care of, even though that individual dies. So this became an argument among these men who are idiots. They're idiots like you, and they're all arguing amongst themselves about Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment, whose wife will be whose if if he dies and then she marries him, the brother. Then whose wife will she be? So they thought, they thought that they got him. They got him in the trick. They got they nailed him. Gotcha. This is totally a confusing mess. These women are looking like shit. Well, how are we going to have any kind of like ownership over these these women if we don't know after we die and leave here whose wife she will be, mine or his? Huge dispute. Explosive. But the Lord points out what should be obvious in your mind already, which is in the day of eternity in the, in the future day of paradise and judgment in the future day of heaven, men and women will not be given to marriage to each other the way that you understand it to be now. And that's what he said. And that was the, that's the, the most clear, it's obvious answer was that if we have to find out whose 
husband is the wife, there can only be one man. Because after all the other men are dead, and that's you and me, brother, you and me, all of us, once we're all dead, who is the only man left alive? Okay? That seems easy enough, right? So that's the husband. The man who's alive has accountability and responsibility. The oldest living brother. Doesn't the scripture say that we're, he's the firstborn into eternal life among many brothers? He's the firstborn into eternal life. Adam and, and other sons, other men came before him, but he was the first to rise and go to, into eternal life. The firstborn among all of the brothers, and we're coming after him because we believe and are called by his name, and we're called into faith to follow after him. But we have to be like him. We have to be Christ-like. We have to be self-sacrificing. We have to be able to hold our virginity and our chastity, not going around and, you know, accusing the women that we're sleeping with of adultery and throwing them down to be murdered. That's what, that's what those young men were doing in that, that, in that parable. They were trying to get her killed just to punish Jesus Christ and, and try to throw a roadblock in his ministry. But he set her free. He set her free. He said, those of you who have no sin, you throw the first stone now. That's why those older men left. They knew that there was sinners among them. And if they engaged in that behavior and that assault and that attack on her, that they would be so liable and so guilty before God and the temple right there. They left. Who's going to be the first one, guys, to throw the accusation? Who's the accuser of the brothers? Who is it? Because I have lots of forgiveness all around for all my brothers. I look all around here. I see the sons of God all rising up, all these believers. It's so crazy. It's so blowing my mind. You don't have any choice. If, you, if you're called to believe this, you're, it's inspiring deep inside you. The seed of life and the seed of faith that's, that's deep inside you is awakening and birthing to life. You can't, you're you're going to believe this. You're not going to get around it. You're not going to be able to miss. When, God, when you're in the hands of the Lord, He has you. Even if it takes the very last moments of your life, He's going to get you. Hey, brother, i got to remind you. If, you're, if, if you hate Him and He hates you, He's going to destroy you. The way a big old 850-pound line destroys a little 350-pound line. Same way. Right? He's going to drag your spinal cord up and down the rocks. That's what the Lord, the living Lord Yeshua is going to do to you, boy. You, ain't mean, you don't mean nothing. You better start honoring that wife of yours because you need her to testify to, of your good nature when we leave this place. It has to be said that when you were here in this place and you were bound to her and you were in that covenant relationship with her, you treated her good. And she, that has to be the, the, the testimony for here on out for eternity. Boy, and if you didn't do that, if you didn't do a good job, what are you going to say to him? What's he going to say to you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what your place in eternity even really is? Oh, I said to Jesus, I come into my heart, Jesus. Now I'm saved. I mean, the Lord Jesus will do what he wants. He's not held into some kind of like legalistic bondage by some kind of scriptural paradigm that you're setting up here. You need him. You're a beggar to him, boy. You pray that sinner's prayer every time you hear, you hope, you hope that you make the cut because you don't know nothing. What if it comes down and gets into your face and says, you know what, get away from me. I don't even know who you are. Who, who are you supposed to be? Your name isn't nothing. You never did nothing. You buried your little talent you had under the dirt and never did nothing with it. Take his talent away and give it to him who had 10 talents. He'll do better with it. Get out of here, little, little riffraff, little, little boy. Right? You ain't no man in this generation. I don't see no men around here. Just find a, find a way to pawn off the accountability and the responsibility of our circumstances of our liability that's on us and pawn it off into somebody else. That's what all these rich people do. They've pillaged and raped Robert and stolen until they have empires. They have 10,000 lifetimes of money. 10,000 lifetimes worth of economic value put up. Not about to share that. 
They're not about to see the needs or the concerns about the, the welfare of other people. And if they do have some kind of philanthropy, it's just some kind of World Economic Forum philanthropy to go over there and vaccinate the brown people. <laughs> Isn't that all what they want to do? Vaccinate some brown people somewhere. And you know that Ebola thing is coming. I'm not, I'm not some kind of like prophet, but you know it doesn't take very much to just put your ear to the ground and pay attention to what these people are doing. But I had to take time out of my day to remind you men out there who are the ones behind this entire power structure, because a lot of these high level, high level orders and power clubs, right? If you're a, a Shriner or if you're a, right, you've gotten to that level of wealth and power, right? You're a Scottish right Freemason high up going up above 20 degrees, right? You're going all the way. There ain't no women in there, dog. And then whenever women they bring in there, they just use them like animals. So same thing with the Jesuit order. You can't be no Jesuit and get up into the second and third and the fourth vow, the bloody oath. You ever heard of that? You guys don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how deep this thing goes. There ain't no women in there, right? That's why the CIA makes me laugh because half the employees, half the actual people that are actually on the books at the CIA are women. So the men have learned to a great deal how to take advantage of women as a weapon of war. Fascinating. The Romans used to be famous for having learned how to use dogs as weapons of war, train them, right? To get the most vicious weapons, canine destroyers, right? But nowadays it's, uh, it's getting women to ultimately serve the grander purpose of the great architect, the great design, right? And of course they will find those women that, are, that will do that. And those women still, ultimately in the end, I'm telling you the Lord is holding you men accountable. You can try to throw as many women under the boss as you want, right? The, the, it's fascinating listening to rap music. It's so disgusting. You know, you're not even a human being if you listen to some disgusting murder rap about killing people and turning women into prostitutes and it ain't all about the money, right? Just, it's all about the, the, the physical abuse. It's all about the psychological trauma of destroying families in your own neighborhood and getting off on that, right? Until, until you get too old where your, your, your anatomy, your junk... Your erection doesn't even work anymore, right? Like the Joe Biden. But you can still lust. You can still lust from the deepest tar pit and the de decrepitude black hole of your non-existent heart. You can still lust after the little kids, even after your plumbing doesn't work anymore. Like, look at them, like trying to sniff little kids and shit. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. He's a disgusting troll. He's literally like some kind of like deformed monstrosity and they just trot him out looking like some kind of pale vampire. <laughs> and look at his disgusting wife. That's the, that's the babysitter, guys. You get, I got pictures like they don't show you anymore, but of her when she was 16 sitting on his knee. <laughs> right? So messed up. So all that accountability is coming, guys. That the Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord Hamashiach, the living, omnipotent God, as far as you're concerned, as far as the only thing that you're ever going to see of God when he eats your face and sends you to where you're going. And maybe me too, boy. Maybe me too. Because really, how, how, what, what among us of all these men have any anything like a resemblance towards his greatness what 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 do we deserve to even be in his company you understand that and they like to talk about his his mercy endures forever they talk about the grace of the lord and anyone could be saved you better start to repent boy you better start to repent of your wickedness and your evil ways you better search the lord high and low and find out the ways that please him what his days are what his moedim are what times and seasons are the lord's you get crossed up with this pagan mystery religion disgusting pedophile worship system and then you're going to go to the lord with some santa claus stuff and try to present him to that you get yourself right jesus christ is the absolute reality of your whole future 
It's the only thing that ever is ever going to matter to your entire existence. Don't look around to your children. Like, don't look around and try to punch down towards your wife and try to find some excuse for her behavior that, that can kind of justify your ridiculous state of being right here. You men are disgusting. Look at you, Bill Gates, you disgusting worm. Even Melinda Gates can't even be around you because you're not even a man anymore, dude. You're disgusting. And all you got left is your little, go in your little office, where, your little cubicle wherever you work, your little sick pig, and do as much damage as you can do before you go where we, fate is going to take you, right? Because you're going to hide out from the disease X, right? You'll, you'll survive that. You'll survive it all, man. But at the very end, death is going to take you too. And you're going to go meet the Lord. And you're going to see what happens to you. So just get ready, all you men out there in the world, you high, mighty, powerful men, you elite, looking so proud, feeling so strong and mighty in your in the presupposition of your worldview, right? And in and, and this, the pride of life, that's what you have. You have the pride of life. And you don't even read your Bible. You don't even know the Lord. You don't know nothing about what that means or how deluded you are. But you have the lust of your Father in you. And you have the pride of life. And you're going to continue on your way. And, and you're going to meet your fate. And you can't seem to turn. Even though we've been warned. Even though you know somehow deep in your heart. Somehow your inner man is screaming out and telling you, please, like King Agrippa. You, know, you almost convince me. You almost can be convinced. You can almost believe the truth and be saved. But you won't. Because you've been created as a vessel of wrath. It's like your father, Satan. Right? Your ultimate deity. The one you guys love so much. Your Pope. Your great father is the devil. And you know it. You know that you love the devil. That, that, you guys are devil-worshipping little scums. And you're going to go right where he goes. That's sad. It's sad for you because you're going to hurt a lot of people in the process. You're going to fulfill all the descriptions, all, all the, the description of the scriptures that have been written about you, all the words that have been written about you. You're going to fulfill all that. You're going to complete the circuit and do what you ought not to be done. And no one can stop you. Right? No one can stop you. So this was just a moment of time just to do a little bit of a preaching and ministry just to help remind you, man, that you better get on your knees. That's why you, you belong on your knees. That's where you belong. That, that's how the family unit should look. You put a little sticker on the back of your window and it has your family, have your family, your kids, and they should show you on your knees. That's where you belong. That's the only way to present yourself before the living, omnipotent God, the Lamb of God, and the Prince of Peace, right? The only nobility, the only monarch has ever mattered and will ever matter. So here we arrived at the end of our episode here of uh, Join the Book Club, and we appreciate you guys coming back and, uh, you know, going through the episodes with us. And here we have another interesting outtake of a conversation with um, our particular author this week, C.T. Wilcox, and he is speaking with the Investigative Journal. And he has some really interesting things to say, really interesting uh, points of view to, to kind of wrap up this particular discussion about his book, The Transformation of the Republic. And so we hope that you will come back and we hope you'll continue to support our sponsors. And we really appreciate all the feedback. The feedback's great. Keep it coming. And in this particular recording here, you can see that it's, you know, a duplicate and we've, you know, other people are recording and you can hear people in the background running the sink and you know you can hear the, the noise of this kind of particular bootleg recording but i really love that kind of stuff so i hope you uh like that lo-fi quality and that uh, bootstring budget that we're operating on here so just you know the conversation and the information is what it's really about so try to uh, follow along the lincoln assassin 
range as Kevin Costner's western guy was shot here. And one of the close friends of Mr. Costner, we would sit down and we would discuss what I was researching and what has turned into this book. And his whole focus was on Booth. And I said, well, wait a minute. Booth wasn't the only guy. You know, there were at least a half a dozen other people involved in that. And then I found out that there was a huge influence from priests. And so, yeah, we had pretty intense discussions over that, right? And so it's basically what I wanted to do was set the record straight, basically. I get as much documentation as I could. And I went to the National Archives in Washington. I went to the Library of Congress. I got documents from the archives of the Austrian government and then private collections and other things and pieced it all together. It took quite a long time. And I said, this is my gift to the American people. I'm giving you your history back because apparently it's been altered to such a degree that if you don't understand your history about what took place then, then how on earth do you expect to understand what's happening now? Yeah. And, you know, just a little aside here. And then we're going to get into what your thesis is and what you found out. Yesterday on my show, I had a gentleman by the name of Brother, goes by the name of Brother Thomas. And he mentioned, he has a law degree. He's now painting houses and just a really good guy to talk to and well-informed. He said in 1988, he uncovered a communist cell in our country that was actually in charge of manipulating the library boards to make sure certain books were taken out. And so it just goes to show you what kind of level we've reached in this country regarding how not only our history is edited, but how basically freedom of speech is a thing of the past. So go ahead. I'm really interested. What did you find out about John Wilkes Booth and the Abraham Lincoln assassination? If we can't get at Kennedy, you know, let's go back and start with Lincoln and work our way up from there. Go ahead. Okay. Well, what I found out was essentially the Booth and Surratt and Atzerodt and Payne and all those guys were hired specifically for the purpose of getting rid of the U.S. government at a point in time where they thought that they could reinstate the Civil War and eventually get what they themselves wanted, which was essentially, I mean, you hear about states' rights and the slave issue, right? Well, that was only part of it. There was a bigger question in play, and that was that the Vatican apparently wanted to place a papal crown on the head of Jefferson Davis. They wanted to establish the principles of monarchy. They wanted to reestablish the principles of monarchy that the United States had just gotten rid of through Britain, right? And because the papacy had backed several of these monarchs in Europe, except for, you know, the crown of England. I mean, that was kind of a back and forth thing, right? The United States decided to embark on an experiment called representative congressional system of government. I did in 2006 with C.T. Wilcox, 
to set the record straight about the Abraham Lincoln assassination. As the monarchs of Europe and the Vatican saw that as a, a very big threat to their own existence, they thought, well, if that concept, if that idea ever catches on in Europe, then we're sunk. Mm -hmm. You know, all of our, all of everything that we worked so hard for over the centuries is like really down the chute and kind of turned out to be the case in, in so far as a lot of these crowns eventually disappeared. Um, so, and, and, so I started, you know, digging back even further. I would ask my cousins, well, like, I mean, you, you've heard of the Monroe Doctrine, right? But do you know what it, what it was all about? What caused President Monroe to come up with that, right? And that's where you get into the machinations of uh, what was called the Holy Alliance. Uh, which yeah, was, tell us about that. What yeah, the Holy out? Alliance was was um, a, a, a joint venture between Austria, Prussia, which is Germany, Russia, and uh, France and the Vatican to maintain the monarchic principles in Europe, to destroy anything that did not agree with them, and to make sure that the experiment now happening in the United States would never blossom. So they got together and they, they worked out this little plan uh, and, and documented it in a, in, a, in a treaty called the Treaty of Verona, which was a ratification of an earlier document uh, from the Congress of Vienna, and what they want, and, and they placed this blueprint into the into the hands of the Jesuits for them to turn around and try to implement this. Now, at the same time, uh, now, who placed what in the into their hands? The, the the monarchies of Europe and the Vatican said to the Jesuits, "Okay, here's what we want to do." Now, what we want you to do is implement all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how they went about that was to try to flood the United States with um, with adherence to their really like, like their first allegiance of a Catholic, um, so far as the church is concerned anyway, is to the Vatican. They are citizens of Rome first and citizens of their country second. And so their, their, their ultimate allegiance has to be to their church. And if it's not, then they are, you know, they, they, they try to bring them back into line and, and, that, um, and do that. So anyway, what happened was they, they, they bring in all these people, uh, tens and tens of thousands of adherents from all over Europe and Ireland and whatnot. And their reasoning was, if we can get these people to become uh, full-blown citizens, then we can turn around and divorce their allegiance from the country and place it into the hands of their uh, uh, their priests and that. And it's like something going on today, uh, those yeah, with the uh, uh, and, and 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 basically use the principles of. Uh, of uh, democracy against it by overwhelming the vote, putting in their own people who can then turn around and uh, alter the Constitution, alter the Bill of Rights, and and uh, bit by bit reestablish.
years. And, and just recently in Newsweek, we talked about this. Uh, there was a statement uh, made by some of these uh, promoters of the uh, illegal immigration rallies that these rallies would not have been successful, and they were actually uh, promoted by the Catholic Church in Los Angeles, by the Archdiocese, and these would have never come about without their help. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and uh, I, well, I have a, a copy of the uh, April 10th issue of Newsweek in my hand right here, and uh, and, and it says that uh, yeah, Catholic leaders have urged the faithful to defy the House immigration bill. Uh, Roger Mahoney, uh, who has the half a million uh, people in his diocese, um, was in Rome when CNN was broadcasting the. Uh, the, the first uh, street marches and that, and uh, he, he, let's say here, he was beside himself, um, uh, you know, like just, just, you know, thoroughly thrilled that this was happening, uh, and he got a uh, papal blessing for it all, and, um, and then there's a, they have a quote here uh, from uh, Vilma Martinez, uh, 39 years old, East LA resident, who stated uh, that he, he went to these marches because the Cardinal said it was important. No other reason. Right. So anyway, let's get back to what we were talking about. You were back in the, we're talking, we're back in history now. Uh, yeah. The Monroe Doctrine, uh, other things, go ahead. Yeah, okay, the Monroe Doctrine, basically, okay, President Monroe uh, sat down with uh, Thomas Jefferson and a few other people, John Quincy Adams, and discussed this uh, threat to the United States, how what would how the, um, the, the 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 monarchs in in Europe wanted to transplant their system of government into North and South America, and so that was kind of the basis for the Monroe Doctrine. It was to, to counteract that, mm -hmm. afford it, um, and and uh, Samuel Morris, as the guy that invented the telegraph, you know. Um, went over to Europe uh, with the blessings of President Monroe to kind of uncover uh, what was going on there. And what he found was just absolutely astonishing. And I, in my second, third chapter in my book, I, I, I basically condense all of his salient points into a book that Samuel Morris wrote in 1835 called Ford Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. As Professor Samuel F. B. Morris. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Who does not do what the church wants? 
John Wilkes Booth perform the act alone? Now, I know you've got some information that's been suppressed for almost 100 years, and this isn't stuff, this is first-hand stuff from a family uh, involved in a priest uh, by the name of Father Chinakwi, who uh, was a client of Abraham Lincoln, and boy, this stuff is just amazing, and how you found it is even more amazing. Let's, get, let's start into it. We have two minutes before the break, and then we'll continue on. Go ahead. Okay, Charles Chinnicky, um he was being set up by his church, okay, and, and uh, after Lincoln's assassination, there's evidence that he's presenting to you, that he's compiled, that he's telling us, that he's giving as a gift to the American people because the history of our country has been hijacked. I know you're going to find that his story is compelling, is true, and is something that all of us need to look at. Uh, how did Abraham Lincoln die? C.T. Wilcox is going to tell you. We're talking right now about Charles, about Mr. Uh, Father Chinnikwe, who had uh, evidence uh, showing that Wilkes was hired uh, by the church, hired by the Jesuit order. And we're going to get into what Mr. Uh, C.T. Wilcox found to lead him to this conclusion. So go ahead and tell us uh, where you left off with Chenequi. Okay. Um, so those are the, yeah, the, the sworn statements from these particular priests in Minnesota. Um, and these were like uh, with this little seal on them and everything. Um, so they're kind of uh, unimpeachable, right? Um, and then I found among uh, the rest of this uh, archive that's out there are private letters from Edwin Sherman, who was uh, a Union officer uh, during the war, and he wrote a book eventually called The Engineer Corps of Hell, uh, subtitled Rome's Sappers and Miners. And in the private correspondence uh, to uh, Charles Chinnicky, he discussed all well, many, many things, uh, but he leaves no doubt as to the fact that the church was completely behind uh, that assassination, uh, and they go into why, um, because they wanted to completely turn the concept of uh, the congressional system of government upside down and reestablish uh, a monarchy. And uh, a monarchy kind of like what's happening today. Yeah, yeah. Why? Well, really? I mean, when you take a look at the number of executive orders that have come down since the administration of Ronald Reagan, uh, who, by the way, after Lincoln's assassination in 1867, the United States had severed all ties, diplomatic ties with the Vatican as a direct result of their involvement in not only helping to engineer the Civil War, but also uh, the assassinations that they were involved in. That's fact. And, and that's fact. And uh, I have a newspaper article in one of the graphics pages that uh, discusses, you know, that, that fact. Uh, Ronald Reagan was the first president since 1867 to reestablish diplomatic ties with the Vatican. And ever since then, there have been all these executive orders coming down, which amount basically to a return to the monarchic principles that caused the war of independence to begin with. Exactly. Amen. You know, what I wanted to mention, this hidden documentation has uh, been hidden for almost 100 years, and it's amazing how he uncovered it. They thought it was all destroyed in this fire, right? Yeah, apparently, but they had no idea that the family had been sitting on the rest of this stuff. In Quebec. And, yeah. And listen, this is, let's get to that and how you talk, I believe, did you talk to one of the family members? Uh, yeah, her name was...
right after this short break on the investigative journal. My guest, C.T. Wilcox, what a fascinating book, Transformation of the Republic. Uh, you can, where can you get that, uh, just so people that are listening know how to get to your uh, website and your book? Tell us. Okay, um, well, my website is ctwilcox.com, and presently it's the only place you can get it. Here we are, guys. We're back with Wendy's Boutique, wendyslimited.com, wendyslimited.com, and the hottest boutique couture online, boutique supremacy online, Wendy's Boutique. So we've got to remind you guys, wendyslimited.com, our great sponsor. Please go and support her and support uh, all the hardworking folks over there that are trying to bring you the best fashion design and designer brand name labels anywhere. So we just have to remind you that wendyslimited.com, Wendy'slimited.com is where you need to go. 